Good morning. It's a real joy and privilege to be with you all here this morning on this very special occasion in the life of your church here at Mount Hermon. Uh, Your brethren over in Mebane at Grace Reform Baptist Church do rejoice with you in uh, the goodness of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord to sustain you and to bless you these 111 years. Uh, I know that none of you here this morning have been here that long, but that there's a church here that is still affirming that covenant that you just read together and the commitments to the Lord and to His Word. Uh, It is really remarkable in the times in which we live, and we give God praise with you uh, for His goodness to you in this occasion. We're very thankful as well for the fellowship that we have with you as a local church in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, we do think of you all often and pray for you. Uh, We've been blessed by uh, Justin's ministry over the last few years when he's come over to preach for us. Of course, we go back uh, a long way with, with Merle and Libby and their family. And uh, again, grateful that uh, the Lord has uh, bound us together in the gospel of his son. Well, in contrast to the joy <clears throat> of this occasion that you're marking today, uh, one of the saddest <clears throat> spiritual experiences I've ever had <clears throat> occurred back in the summer of 1988. I was living and working in London, England that summer, and one Sunday I had the opportunity to attend uh, the evening worship service at Westminster Chapel. Uh, If you're not familiar with Westminster Chapel, uh, Westminster Chapel was the church of G. Campbell Morgan and then also Martin Lloyd-Jones. Maybe you've heard of those men uh, before. Well, I sat among just a, a handful of people attending that evening worship service in the first few rows of that 1,500-seat sanctuary, rather dumbfounded, frankly, as we were led through a service without much order and literally without a sermon and without much of the Word of God and without much of Christ or the gospel a service that really made much of men. And it was tremendously discouraging to me to think of uh, the history of that church uh, when G. Campbell Morgan was there preaching the Word, and Martin Lloyd-Jones was there, and, and my experience in 1988. Now, granted, it could have been a bad night. Sometimes that happens in the life of a local church. I was struck by the thought that night that it's much easier to lose a rich deposit of truth than it is to gain it and to keep it. Do you, do you agree with that, that assertion? Have you been a part of the church of Jesus Christ long enough to know that to be true? It's much easier to lose the truth than it is to gain it and to keep it. Special occasions like anniversaries provide us with important opportunities to reorient ourselves or to realign ourselves to that which is central to our life and our faith, to come back to the center, if you will, to the things that matter the most. Over time in the church, as you know, we can be easily distracted 
We can uh, be easily disoriented and carried away from uh, the main things or from the central things of our faith and life. Besides that, many burdens and concerns occupy our hearts and our minds uh, in our families, in the church, in our nation, in the world. And these are definitely troubling times, aren't they? that we find ourselves living in, things that are happening all around us, even in North Carolina. I'm I'm from Alamance County, North Carolina, a rural county, maybe it's somewhat like here in in Rocky Mount, Uh, things happening in our county courthouse that I never thought we would see. And they're troubling times, aren't they, for us as Christians? And so it's easy to be distracted from the important things from the main things. And so we need regular reminders of the things that matter the most to us as Christians so that we won't drift away from the foundations, from the center. So on the occasion of your 111th anniversary as a church, I want to look at a passage with you that I believe in a very effective way brings us back to the center of true Christian faith, with the prayer uh, and the blessing of God that Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church will never drift away from it. The passage that we'll look at together is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and we'll read these verses together. I'm reading from the New King James 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. The Apostle Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There are three things I want to observe with you from this text. Ordinarily, we would take some time to uh, talk about the context in which we find uh, a passage like this, but for the sake of time, and because these four verses really can stand on their own in what they assert and teach us, uh, we're just going to dive right in uh, to these four verses, uh, three observations that we want to make, and they are these. First, the centrality of the gospel. Secondly, the heart of the gospel. And thirdly, the ongoing application of the gospel. Those are the three things we want to think about together. First, the centrality of the gospel. I want you to imagine with me for a moment uh, a wedding ceremony taking place in your church. All the preparations have been made. The church is beautifully decorated with flowers and with candles. The bridesmaids uh, have their dresses and their hair done. The groomsmen have their tuxes on. Uh, The bride is all ready. The groom is all ready to go. Uh, The music is gorgeous. The service is lovely. The rings are shiny. And the reception to follow is just exquisite. It's the best reception food you've ever had. 
But in the midst of all of that, no vows were exchanged between the bride and the groom. Now, the fact is, no matter what else took place that day as a part of that wedding ceremony, without the vows, it is not a Christian wedding, and in fact, it's not a true marriage. The vows are central to the ceremony and the marriage, which is a covenantal relationship, right? The vows are central. Uh, All the other things are important, but they're not central like the vows. Now, let's imagine a different ceremony, uh, a service that's very simple, no frills. It's about 10 minutes long, but vows are exchanged. Now, that is a true ceremony, and that would be a true Christian marriage because the vows are central. When Courtney and I got married uh, over 23 years ago, we came to the end of the service, and the minister forgot to say, of all things, Andy, you may kiss your bride. (laughs) And we forgot too. And We walked down the aisle uh, after he pronounced his husband and wife, and Courtney still had her veil down, and we got to the back of the the, the chapel, and we looked at each other and remembered that we hadn't kissed. I lifted her veil and kissed her then. But even though we forgot to kiss at the end of our service, we were still married. Why? Because we had exchanged the vows, and they were central to the marriage ceremony. Well, in our passage, Paul is declaring, by way of reminder, the truth of the gospel. And in verse 3, he says of the gospel, I declared to you, first of all, that which I received. The phrase, first of all, and again, that's the the New King James translation, first of all is not a reference to time, it's not a reference to chronology, The gospel was not merely the first of many other things Paul declared to them. Rather, he means here, it was first by way of priority. It was first by way of its importance. I think that's what perhaps your ESVs say. It is of first importance. Paul declared the gospel as that which is of first importance importance to Christianity. It is central. It lies at the very heart of all that we are about as Christians and all that we're about as Christian churches. Now you may say that's very obvious. (laughs) Of course, we believe that. But isn't it easy to be derailed? Isn't it easy to be distracted from the heart of the matter, from that which is central? Many other things really are important. But everything else, and this is the point we must get, everything else is on the periphery. It's on the outside, in a sense, relative to the gospel, which is at the heart, which is central, like those marriage vows. If you take away the gospel, you could have an awful lot that looks like Christianity. You could have an awful lot that looks like a Christian church, but it's not. 
Why? Because the gospel is foundational. The gospel is central. It's a truth that I believe the Church of Christ knows better in theory than it does in practice. The gospel isn't just something that gets, gets us in the door with God. You know, we, we, we enter through the gospel. We, we've got that right. We, we've believed in Jesus uh, and Christ alone for the salvation of our sins. And now that we're in, we move on to all kinds of other things. Perhaps more important things. No. As the church and as individual believers, the gospel is to be our chief cause. The gospel is to be our chief identity in the world. It is, as Paul says, of first importance. The gospel is what makes us what we are as Christians. And again, if you remove it, if you deny it, We cease to be distinctly Christian. Remove it, and we relinquish our hope. Remove it, and we relinquish our power. There are many things that we must be as the church, and there are many things that we must do, and they're all important. But they all must remain in orbit around the gospel. They all must be, to to change the analogy, built on the foundation of the gospel. Let me try to illustrate for you what I mean with respect to the centrality of the gospel. It's election time. I assume you're well aware of that. We've already prayed about the elections, and it's it's good for us to to pray uh, for our leaders, as the New Testament tells us, to be concerned about the outcome of the election. I believe very strongly in our individual right and responsibility as Christians to serve as uh, faithful citizens of the, the land in which we live. I believe many Christians should serve in public office if God uh, enables them and gifts them and calls them to serve uh, our country in that way. But the church should never become so preoccupied with or identified with particular political causes that we lose our chief identity and cause in the gospel. To be quite candid with you, and I don't mean to offend anyone here today, uh, it troubles me that the church of Jesus Christ can come to be identified very closely with one particular political party. So that many people in our land who aren't Christians, when they think church, they just think right-wing conservative politically. Now, Again, don't misunderstand me. I believe the Word of God would would move us in the direction of many uh, what might be considered conservative perspectives and causes, especially in terms of issues like the right to life and and the function of human government as God has ordained it. But you see my point. The identity of the church should always and ever be only Christ and the gospel. What a, what a tragedy if the world, when they look at us, see something altogether different than that because we become so caught up with things like political causes. The world should always know, brethren, that our real passion is the gospel. That's what I'm talking about. 
They should know that the church of Jesus Christ gets excited. Not about earthly causes so much, but about the cause of our Savior. That's what excites us. That's what we're zealous for. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're pouring out our lives and our time and our energy and our money into is to see men and women and young people come to know Jesus and to join us in His worship in the church. We're citizens, first and foremost, of Christ's kingdom, right? And the the marching orders of the church were given to us by Christ 2,000 years ago in the Great Commission. That's to be our cause. That's to be our identity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe the same idea holds true for the many social concerns that rightly demand our, our efforts, and our attention as the people of God. I'm encouraged to to read your bulletin and to see some of the things that that you're engaged in uh, as a church and seeking to do benevolent ministry uh, and meeting real needs in the, the, the context in which you live. It's good for the church to be concerned about poverty and homelessness and abortion and injustice and to seek to do things about those needs. It's good for the church to be engaged in benevolent works that glorify our Father in heaven. Jesus told us to do that. But again, we must never be so preoccupied and identified with those social concerns that we lose sight of the centrality of the gospel. That's happened in church history, hasn't it? To where people have moved away from the center. And they're very zealous for social causes and for injustice and for oppression. And real Christians should be concerned about those things. And the church should be active in engaging those, those needs. But there are some who have rejected the true gospel the need for people to repent of their sins and to be made right with God and and, and to have His justice satisfied in Jesus Christ and to embrace what is a social gospel that Jesus was really only concerned about hunger and about poverty and about uh, healing diseases. And that's really what the church should be about. No. We should be about those things in order to communicate the love of God in Jesus Christ through the gospel to the world, in order to open up doors of opportunity so that we can come to that poor man and we're seeking to to give him food or clothing or shelter, and we come to him and say, we're doing this for you because we love you, because Jesus loves you, and we want you to come to know him. And ultimately, not to be saved from your earthly poverty, but your soul poverty, because that's what you really need. Have you ever encountered a ministry that began as a Christian ministry and has been taken over by uh, perhaps even the government, and now it's a, a totally secular ministry? I've, I've encountered ministries like that, especially in the urban context, in the, in the inner city, and it, it's really tragic to think of the, the light, the witness of the gospel being lost as even benevolent ministries that began with a heart for the gospel and to see men and women saved has now drifted away from the center. Even in the church, in a a group like this, there are many causes that excite us, right? And that we get passionate about, and they're important. 
education, the family, certain theological perspectives, women, women's ministries, men's ministries, uh, discipleship, leadership, music, on and on we could go. All the things that kind of make up life in this world and in the church. And we, be, we can become very passionate about those things that, that we care about. They're all good things, but they must always be subordinate to and subservient to the gospel. I want you to think for a moment about Corinth, the, the city uh, to which Paul was writing in this, in this section of the New Testament. Back in 1 Corinthians 6.9, Paul writes these words, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. I know at times we feel like we're living in the worst of times, the worst of days. Surely this must be the most wicked generation that's ever lived. I, I know it's bad, and it's sad to witness the decline that we're witnessing in our day, but brethren, Corinth was bad. I can't imagine our, our times are worse than they were in Corinth morally. It was a filthy place. It was an idolatrous place. It was a sexually immoral place. It was a pagan place. And think of it. Maybe you could think of picture New York City or something like that. One solitary Jew walked into that city, that Gentile pagan city, and he was determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He was determined to preach nothing else but the message of the cross. And God blessed it. And people were converted. And people were radically changed. And a church was formed. And Paul was able to say, in that section I read earlier, if you, if you read on, he was able to say, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul, how did that happen? How'd you do it? What methods did you employ, Paul? Boy, you, you must have really been effective in your... Uh, uh, strategies for missions there in Corinth in order to see radical change like that happen. No. What was it? He preached the gospel. He kept the gospel as of first importance. Everything else is periphery to the gospel. So whatever else we do, whatever else you do here at Mount Hermon, whatever else uh, we preach and teach. We must be sure to live and breathe and preach and communicate and be devoted to the gospel. It's central to all that we are, to all that we do as Christians. Well, what is the gospel? That brings us to the second observation from the passage, the heart of the gospel. We've seen the centrality of the gospel. Now consider, secondly, the heart of the gospel. What is the heart or the essence of this thing that Paul says is of first importance to true Christianity. Paul says again in verse 3, look there, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He also rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, we do need to take this whole statement together to understand the heart or the essence of the gospel. And in fact, I, I believe we must acknowledge that the gospel rightly understood, the gospel fully understood, includes far more than just the three historical facts that Paul mentions here. The gospel fully and rightly understood includes all of God's plan of salvation from before time began. It includes wonderful, deep truths like election and justification and adoption and sanctification and ultimately glorification. All of that uh, comprises the true gospel fully understood. But what's the heart of the gospel? What's, what's the essential center that we can't do without? Well, I think we can do no better than summarize it in the opening phrase that Paul uses here. What's the essence of the gospel? What's the heart of it? It's very simple, isn't it? I don't know how old the youngest child is here this morning, but you can understand this. And if you haven't really been listening yet, and I don't blame you if you haven't been, I'm hard to listen to, I know that. But listen to this. You can understand this. This is the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's it. It's a wonderful summary of the good news of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It's what Paul calls the message of the cross back in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, when we think about the heart of the gospel or the message of the cross, it really contains two simple ideas. We must emphasize first what we have done, and then we must understand what God has done. Another way to put that, we need to understand our great problem and God's great solution. First, the heart of the gospel must include, brethren, a faithful declaration of what we have done or our sins. Paul says, Christ died for what? To make us materially rich? No. I hope you despise the health and wealth gospel that we sometimes encounter in our world Christ didn't come into the world to make us materially rich. He died, what does he say? For our sins. That's our problem. And even the youngest of your children here this morning, I I must tell you, because I love you, that's your problem before a holy God. Mankind's greatest problem, mankind's greatest need is to be delivered from our sins. We must never forget it. Every other need is secondary to the problem created for us by our sins in the presence of our Maker, a holy God. Our sins, the Bible tells us, condemn us before God. Our sins ruin our life. 
Our sins separate us from God and from people, even the people whom we love. Our sins lead us astray. You see, we'll never understand why the gospel is good news. And in fact, we'll never really be saved. We'll never be made right with God unless we first come to understand and admit for ourselves and confess for ourselves before God, it's my sins. My sins that have come from my heart. They weren't forced on me. They weren't imposed on me. It wasn't some outside force that made me do it, that made me tell a lie, that made me have a lustful thought, that made me uh, not love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. That didn't come from anywhere else but from within my sinful heart. And it's my sins that come from my heart that will lead to my ruin and ultimately to my just damnation. You see, we may need food, we may need housing, we may need financial planning, we may need health care, we may need education, we may need many other things to function on a certain level in this world. But ultimately, what do we have if we fail to meet or to address our deepest need? Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So the heart of the gospel includes, first of all, our sins, our great problem. But the gospel is essentially good news. And so its greater emphasis is on what God has done. Praise God. I love the the but God statements in in the New Testament, you know, where Paul, uh, most frequently it's Paul who's, who's giving us the bad news, like Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. He did something about it. The emphasis of the gospel is on what God in Christ has done to deliver us from our great problem, our sins. That message, very simply, is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into the world and became a man. He added humanity to His deity so that He might die for our sins, according to the Scriptures. The main focus of the Gospel is the offering up of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on that Roman cross in the place of sinners like you and me. And in so doing, think of it. When Jesus died on the cross, He fully absorbed the just wrath of God against the sins that we have committed. It's the message of substitutionary sacrifice. We deserve the wrath. Jesus dies in our place. He takes the wrath that our sins deserve so that we can be forgiven of our sins. We can be washed of every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit. We can be declared righteous in the sight of holy, holy, holy God. Why? Because Jesus, the righteous one, died in our place. It's the message of the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins 
of the world. Let me just pause and ask you this morning, do you believe that? Have you ever come to the place where you, you've been convicted of your sins and you know that in the sight of your maker God who is holy and righteous in all that he does and who will not just overlook your sins and you recognize that, that you're not right with him and that if you were to stand before him on your own as you are right now and, you were to say, and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Well, my, I think my good works were a little better than my bad. And what does God say? Guilty. The wages of sin is death, my friend. So have you ever experienced that conviction over your sins and, and you've heard the gospel before perhaps? Some of you children here this morning, maybe you've heard the gospel all the days of your life, but you've never actually turned to Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing your sins, and acknowledging that Jesus alone is the Savior of sinners like you. Have you ever cried out to him to save you, to deliver you from your sins and from the wrath of God that you deserve? Have you ever believed on him as Savior and Lord? The good news of the gospel is Jesus died for people just like you. The gospel isn't for good people. Do you realize that? That's the wonderful news of the gospel is that it's for bad people. It's for for people who know that in themselves they're not good enough to be forgiven. They're not good enough to make it to heaven. They need what Jesus has done in order to be saved. If you would believe on him today, if you would cry out to him today, the word of God says God will save you. He doesn't turn away anyone who comes to him in faith. And so we urge you today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the heart of the gospel. And brethren here at Mount Hermon, that's what we must cling to. That's what we must trust in. That's what we must preach to a lost world. That's the essential message of the gospel. And it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. If we're ever going to see men and women converted and come to new life in Christ, if we want to see lives that have been wrecked by sin radically changed, if we want to see the chains of sin and addiction broken in the lives of people that we care for, this is the message that we must preach, that we must share, because this is the power of God. This is the heart of the gospel. Let me just say a quick word to parents here this morning. I know that parenting is a challenging, involved job. There's a lot to think about in parenting, a lot of concerns that you have. Uh, We've been there. I understand that. Be sure that you are conveying the heart of the gospel to your children. Surprisingly easy, if you stop and think about it, to let days and weeks and months go by We've never actually sat down with our children and taken them up into our laps and said, my son, my daughter, the the word of God tells you that you're a sinner. Do you remember the other day when I I told you to clean up your room and you didn't do it and you went outside and played? And that that was disobedience. And God says, children, obey your parents. And when you disobeyed me, that was sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death and you need a savior. 
And Jesus is that Savior. Believe on Him. The Bible says Jesus died for our sins so that we won't have to perish. But you must believe in Him for yourself. Daddy's faith can't save you. Mommy's faith can't save you. Going to Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church won't save you. Being homeschooled won't save you. Reading good books won't save you. You, my son, my daughter, you need to believe in Christ. When's the last time you you, you shared that with your children, parents? And I know, I know how easy it is to let the days go by. Let's be sure that we are conveying the heart of the gospel to them. Let's be sure we're not teaching them a legalistic form of Christianity, right? In our homes. The gospel should be the atmosphere of our homes. And they should know without a shadow of a doubt that the only way to be right with God is not by works of righteousness, which they do but by what Christ has done for them and believing in Him. Well, brethren, may God keep you faithful no matter how much pressure comes on us in these days. And I feel it. Don't you feel it? Don't you feel that social pressure to just shut up? Right? There's nothing more offensive in our culture right now than to say Jesus is the only way for sinners to be made right with God. That's become the great sin of our society is to be that narrow, right? To be that exclusive in our faith. And there's pressure. May God keep us faithful no matter what comes against us that we'll never shut up. (laughs) That with love, with grace, with kindness, we'll tell our neighbors and we'll tell anyone who will listen There is a Savior, and His name is Jesus, and He's the only way. That is the heart of the gospel. Well, we've seen the centrality of the gospel and the heart of the gospel. Finally, and and briefly, consider with me the ongoing application of the gospel. The point I want to make here is simply this. The gospel is for Christians. Note Paul's words back at the beginning of verse 1. He says there, I declare to you, brethren, the gospel... Paul is writing to Christians, isn't he? Why does he need to declare the gospel to them? They knew the gospel. But evidently, they needed to be reminded of the gospel, and they needed to live and to think and and to walk consistently with the gospel, and so they needed to make ongoing application of the gospel to their lives. Look at the words Paul uses here to describe the believer's ongoing relationship to the gospel. He says, you received it, you have been standing in it, and through it you are being saved if you hold fast to it. You see, the gospel isn't just something we we accept at the beginning and then we move on to other things. Paul knew nothing of a Christianity that embraced the gospel for salvation, then moved on to other things for everything else. For Paul, the Christian life is one of a deepening understanding and application of the gospel to every area of life. I think that's a good way to think about Christian maturity for us as individuals and for Christian churches, a deepening understanding and application of the gospel to every area of life. It remains central, brethren. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 50 years. You need the gospel every day. 
You need to keep on understanding and applying the gospel to your heart and to your life and, and by God's grace, seeing the, the dynamics of the gospel displayed in the way you speak to people, in the attitudes of your heart, in your actions, in your choices, in your priorities, in the way you're using your time, in the way you're spending your money, and in all your relationships with your family, with your friends, with the people that you're with in the church. The gospel does have primary application at the beginning to our justification, but it has practical, ongoing application to every area of life. Read Paul again. (laughs) Paul can't talk about anything for very long without bringing the gospel to bear on it, right? He talks about stewardship of money and giving, and he makes this great statement that Christ, who was rich, became poor so that you, for that that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's the gospel. There's strife in the church. And Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was equal with God, humbled himself and, and became obedient even to the point of death. And what's he doing? He's applying the gospel to your relationships with one another in the church. He comes to talk about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And what does he say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for her. You see, the gospel having ongoing practical application to every area of life. And we could go on and on. The point is, the gospel is for Christians. We must preach it to ourselves every day. We must remain steadfast in our commitment to plant the flag of the gospel in the very center of all that we are and all that we do. We must plant the gospel in our personal walk with Christ in an ongoing way. Isn't it easy as a Christian to slide into a merit mentality in our relationship with God, our Father? Do you know what I mean by that? The way that we relate to God every day, and in fact, the way we think of Him uh, thinking of us is, is no longer on the basis of Christ and the gospel, but it's how we've performed this past week. Do you ever do that? You know, I haven't been very consistent in my quiet time. I blew up at my, at my wife the other day. Uh, I, I, I looked at things that I shouldn't have this week. I, I haven't been as faithful as I should have in this area or that. And all of a sudden, what are we doing? We're drawing back from God. And we think that He's drawing back from us. What do we need to do? We need to plant the flag of the gospel in our ongoing relationship with God. And we need to say, God, I'm not worthy. That's the whole point. I've sinned. I've failed. I confess my sins, but I come to you through Jesus. And I know that you receive me and you accept me, not on the basis of what I've done, but on the basis of what he's done. We need to plant the flag in the middle of our sanctification and our service so that, again, we don't move into a kind of self-righteous approach to the Christian life. Every effort that we ever make, brethren, as Christians, is on the basis of gratitude for what Jesus has done, not to merit favor with God. And that fuels our zeal and our ongoing efforts at holiness and at service. We should plant the gospel in our homes so that there's a gospel atmosphere that pervades our family life and our relationships. We need to plant the gospel in our relationships with one another in the church. 
Plant it in the middle of your trials and your heartaches so that you know and remember that God loves you and that the God who has called you in the gospel is working all things together for your good. It's the gospel that helps you to believe that promise and embrace it. We need to plan it, brethren, with boldness and with conviction and confidence among those who are perishing. And above all, always, always, Mount Hermon, keep the gospel as the main thing in your life together as a local church. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners. There's no other way to God through Him. May He keep you faithful to that good news and to that message. What have we seen? The centrality of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, the ongoing application of the gospel. The gospel, brethren, is the main thing. Nothing else even comes close. It is of first importance. Before coming today, I went to your website and I read the brief description of your history as a church, and what I found most intriguing was the origin of your name, Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. The Mount Hermon evidently, or most likely coming from Psalm 133, verse 3, that reference to uh, the, the blessedness, the pleasantness when brethren dwell together in unity in their devotion to God and His Word. Uh, the word missionary uh, inserted in the name in 1903 in order to make a distinction from the primitive Baptists who perhaps held certain beliefs in common with us but applied them wrongly and, and wouldn't preach the gospel or didn't think they needed to take the gospel to the nations. And you wanted to identify yourselves as a church that, that, that held the gospel as central and, and, and the work of preaching the gospel as vital to your identity. Your name means gospel unity. Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. That's a great name. And that's a great purpose. To seek to live together, God helping you, as long as the doors of this church are open, in gospel unity. The gospel being evident in your life together internally, and working together, laboring together, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel and taking that message to the world. Paul says to us this morning, come back to the center. Remember what you're all about. Remember and do not forget Mount Hermon. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried He was raised again from the dead on the third day, according to the Scriptures. This is of first importance. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for all the needful reminders that You have left for us in the Scriptures. Thank You for reminding us this morning that the Gospel is of first importance. And I do pray for your blessing on this local church. Thank you for how faithful and good you have been to this church for many years. And Lord, its future is entirely dependent upon you and upon your grace and your blessing and your mercy. So bless 
My dear brethren in this place, keep them faithful to the truth, especially the truth of the gospel. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.